First, to state the obvious, the country is in crisis. To see this Brexit through. This deal is dead. And now determined to frustrate Brexit and the result of the referendum in 2016. Absolutely clear from what he said just now. So together we can take back control of our borders, laws and money. Are you saying the Prime Minister is breaking her promises? I'm Are you saying, saying that she's not sticking rigorously to the truth? So, welcome to a special Brexit podcast. I'm Claire Fox, the Director of the Academy of Ideas, and this is a seasonal return of Fox News Fridays. One of the more unusual things that happened in 2018 was I had a temporary residence on Love Sport Radio called Fox News Fridays. This is one not owned by Rupert Murdoch. Fox News on Friday with Claire Fox. And such is its popularity that we're back by popular demand for one last time of the year. So, if you've been feeling frustrated by the last few months of Brexit negotiations and scandals, backtracks and pulled votes, then you're definitely not alone. At the Academy of Ideas, we've been pulling our hair out. But we've also been organising debates throughout the year. Everything from the Brexit economy to the crumbling of political parties were organised at our annual festival of the Battle of Ideas. We had a focus on uh, Europe and its history and philosophy at the Residential Conference, the Academy, and at our residential school aimed at 18 to 25-year-olds living freedom. But after two years of talking, it does seem that we're no closer to securing what 17.4 million people voted for during the EU referendum. So as we head into the new year, let's look back on some of the key talking points throughout the Brexit debate and we might even hazard a guess at some predictions for 2019. So Brexit and British democracy, a major theme for us, let's discuss it. And I'm joined by the Academy of Ideas Partnerships Manager, Jacob Reynolds, and our Science and Technology Editor, Rob Lyons. I'm going to start off with a little bit of a focus on the economy. So um, Rob, uh, let's talk to you first. Um, how much should we believe the scaremongering around Brexit and the economy? Uh, I think we should take it with a very massive pinch of salt. The kind of predictions that were made in 2016 about an immediate recession if we voted to leave never turned out to be true. In fact, we have the lowest unemployment rate since the mid-70s. And while it's taken a while for wages to finally start to pick up after the Great Recession of 2008, even even wages are now rising in real terms. So the, the economic picture is relatively rosy, as you know, as goes the last sort of twenty years or so. We should be very, very careful about the, the claims that are being made. Uh, we also should be clear about the claims that are being made about what exactly is being said. So, for example, the Treasury's forecasts are that we won't be quite as rich as we might have been if we have a no-deal Brexit in 15 years' time. That's quite a bit different from saying there's going to be some kind of cataclysm, as the Bank of England is arguing. But certainly we should be much more measured about the kind of claims, even in the worst-case scenario, that we're talking about a fraction of a percent of GDP per year over the next 15 years, something that we will barely notice in the great scheme of things. And actually, even that is probably scaremongering. OK, so, Jacob, you know, despite what Rob says, though, Mark Carney has said that it could be worse than the recession of 2008. 
And I suppose not wanting to appear to be glib or complacent about possible economic problems. I mean, do you think Carney's right or how do you kind of approach this? Well, the way I approach it is that the the two words that are on the lips of all politicians about the possibilities of a no-deal Brexit or even when they try and argue against a second referendum are that it would be divisive and would create uncertainty. What they really mean by that is that it would represent a change to the status quo. And if there's one thing that most people need after sluggish economic growth, really poor productivity, an economic model that doesn't deliver rising living standards for the vast majority of people, one whereas we keep hearing all of an awful lot of economic growth, the proceeds of that seem to go to an ever smaller group of people. There's a, if there's one thing in that context that we do need, it is a little bit of uncertainty, which means change. And it is a little bit of division, which means probably redistribution or finding a new way to share the possible economic possibilities that do exist. So to be honest, like while we'll never... Uh, economic models are inherently unreliable. They might point in a sort of vaguely helpful direction to the fact that it might mean a little bit of economic turbulence. But ultimately, if we're going to forge a new economy that will work better for people, then I think we do need a little bit of uncertainty. We need to change things up. One of the questions that's rarely asked is, couldn't Brexit bring economic growth? I mean, why can't we be a bit more optimistic when we view this? Because one of the things that drives me mad is the only discussion on the economy is in terms of tariffs and trade rather than a kind of substantive discussion as Jacob started to allude to of what might kind of shake up we might need to make economic growth a possibility an outcome that we would celebrate in terms of Brexit. Rob any thoughts on that? Well I mean there's all sorts of ways in which uh, this kind of a shake-up could have uh, benefits. First of all we could lower tariffs on goods from around the world especially on things that we don't make so for example trainers have an extraordinarily high tariff on them so why not get rid of that or lower it to something negligible um, so that we can all benefit from that and there's plenty of other examples of that foods that we don't produce in the UK for example that those things could all be cheaper but we do need just a general shake-up and a real realization that you know economic growth has got to come first so for example at the moment we're paying very substantial green taxes or green levies on our energy bills and you know we really need to look at those things again and perhaps the uh, a no deal brexit would be the kind of shake up where we'd actually have to look very, very seriously at these policies that for now have been taken for granted. I quite like the kind of, you know, cheat trainers for Brexit (laughs) slogan. But anyway, uh, Jacob. Yeah, so one of the great ironies of this situation is that everybody who's queuing up to tell us Brexit would be an economic catastrophe and the sort of banks or the Bank of England or forecasting agencies or rating agencies that seem so concerned about a sort of radical or no-deal Brexit, they're the very ones that have been shown to be completely incapable of delivering sustained economic growth and a rise in living standards for basically almost the better part of half of half a century. And so the the idea that we should sort of defer to them about their expectations for economic growth when all they're really offering is a couple of percentage points of GDP here and there seems to me to be ridiculous. We need something more radical. We need something a little different. And I I think a lot of people voted to leave the EU on the assumption that they would get something different. Uh, Rob, one of the things is that, you know, everybody that's, you know, all the kind of people who would want a kind of decent economy, entrepreneurship and all the rest of it, is associated with taking risks, with actually... um, daring to kind of go into places you'd never have thought of before. I mean, that's the whole basis of capitalism in a way. Um, So one of the things that's most extraordinary is all of these kind of leading bodies like the CBI and so on, basically 
uh, promoting a precautionary principle on the economy. I mean, that to me seems to speak to why the economy is so uh, stuck in and of itself. I mean, any thoughts on how we could encourage them to kind of be a bit braver? Well, I mean, uh, the thing about big businesses is that it likes certainty and it kind of quite likes regulations, actually, because the thing about regulations is if you're a huge business, you've got a whole department of people that can deal with regulations, lobby about them and all that sort of stuff. If you're a newcomer, if you're a, you know, an entrepreneur with a small business that's trying to grow rapidly, you struggle with regulation. And so regulation, uh, it's no wonder that these big companies and these big trade bodies are very keen on, on, on these kind of things and things staying the same the way that they are at the moment. Yeah. And they are inherently quite conservative because they are the, if you like, they're the, they're in pole position at the moment. They don't want change. So we have to have some kind of shake up by which new entrants can come into markets, shake things up, uh, and really challenge these incumbents. To make, them, to make them raise their game as much as anything else. And for example, opening up to global trade uh, means that you are opening yourself up to the best uh, in your particular business from around the world. Um, and that seems to me a much better option than you know, this fairly cosy sort of way things are operating at the moment in the EU, EU where we operate behind a protectionist barrier of our common tariffs. Okay, I think a bit of creative destruction is always a, a positive thing in that sense. Uh, finally, Jacob, to you. One of the things that people say all the time is people didn't vote to be poorer. And there's this sort of idea that the economic arguments are the things which are going to really uh, force people to change their mind, that all these kind of poor people voted Brexit to express their dissatisfaction, but actually now they're just going to be making themselves even poorer. Is the economy even a key question in this debate, or how do you think we should approach that one? Yeah, so the the, the way the debate's conducted often is to try and sort of seem quite patrician and in touch with how the sort of masses are feeling and they've voted Brexit all because they're quite poor or because they aren't uh, doing so well or because living standards haven't risen. And whilst there's some truth to that, it's a way of reducing what Brexit was to a purely economic calculation. Whereas I think it's quite obvious to everybody to anybody who spent any time in the UK over the run-up to the Brexit referendum or spoke to people in pubs or bars or had those debates as were happening all around the country was that there was something more at play than just economics and that was a sort of radical demand to take more control over our lives part of that has to do with economics part of it has to do with immigration but part of it just has to do with genuinely feeling that it's us ordinary people who are in control of the way in which our country goes rather than it being something that's held away from us and conducted in brussels okay thanks that's great safely takes us into the next section that we're going to talk about which is democracy so whatever will happen to Brexit, the one thing I think is absolutely sure is that no one will ever look at Parliament in the same way again. I think there's been a real shake up and kind of change in terms of how people are suddenly having transparency uh, in front of them and seeing things for what they are. So from votes of no confidence to the outright rebellion against the referendum result, MPs are really showing their true colours. And everywhere I go, people are talking about just that. So I'm now going to talk about it. I'm now joined by our membership and events director, Jeff Kidder, and also our associate director, Alistair Donald. So, Alistair, um, how is uh, representative, is parliament at the moment? Um, I mean, I think I want to 
think about how the unwillingness to deliver Brexit has revealed a kind of crisis within the entirety of Westminster. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it has uh, uh, revealed the crisis. I thought just looking at the papers the last few days, it's been very interesting, some of these surveys. So one in the Sunday Times yesterday, which asked people uh, what they thought of the prospective next leaders. All of them ranked uh, negatively from minus 18% down to minus 41%. So there's just no enthusiasm whatsoever for anybody that potentially seems to uh, have the ability to lead the country. There's just no enthusiasm for it whatsoever. Similarly, last week, I think there was another poll which suggested that only one in seven people think that either the Labour Party or the Tory party represents their views and their interests. So it does seem that uh, one of the things or the thing that brought the Brexit referendum around in the first place, which was a sense that uh, the political class are no longer representative of the aspirations and ambitions of the people, uh, has been even more revealed as we go through this this, this process of, of trying to leave. I mean, people are talking about, Jeff, a new election, what would happen in an election. And the reason why I think that's important is but I saw that somebody uh, just asked a question in one of those surveys on uh, social media saying, do we need a new party? Because it does feel as though a general election or the whole sort of stuff around this won't resolve anything. But just sort of something on the state of the parties and what would happen in a general election, would it solve anything? Peculiar thing about Britain, and it seems even more peculiar at the moment, is you have people in the same party, whether it's Conservative or Labour Party, who detest each other. Listening on the radio yesterday to Chris Patton describing very aggressively Brexiteers as rats. I mean, talking about fellow, you know, well, he's not an MP now, but people in his own party and discussing that way. In a different country, these parties would have broken apart, been reconstituted. But in Britain, things just continue through the Labour Party, which has been colonised by uh, what, what are called Corbynites, but a section of the Labour Party, and the Conservative Party, who currently with Theresa May, but then there's, there's all these other people squabbling. So how that's going to work itself out, you think eventually things will be reordered around the different parties, um, but you don't know. On the election, I think in one way you can... The problem with the whole way Brexit is being talked about in Parliament and going through Parliament is that ordinary people are following it very closely, but they're excluded from any meaningful input into it, apart from through the uh, public opinion surveys, which Alistair's just mentioned. And so a general election is one way, presumably, where people could maybe have some input, have some not be just a stage army or even uh, spectators watching everything from the outside. But I think that the, the, the problem I've got is that the first point that you made, Jeff, exactly correctly, is that the political parties don't represent the major splits. And so in terms of people shouting at the, 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 the kind of machinations that are going on in Parliament, I think that if there was a general election, the manifestos would be no more reflective of the, you know, of the things that in a way people feel most passionately about. So... In that sense, Alistair, I mean, any, any comments on this? Yeah, I thought Jacob Rees-Mogg was really interesting in what he said in the immediate aftermath of the no-confidence vote when he was he was interviewed on, on the television. And he said a couple of things. He, he, he talked about the way that uh, the vote to support May uh, was largely reflective of the payroll of government. And I, I, you just got a real sense that... Um, 
in, in, in the way that democracy is meant to work, where there's uh, the people and they're represented by political parties and there's a vote taken and a decision as to who the government is, there's a kind of continuity between the people and the government, that now there's a real sense that the government is, is completely separate from the people and doesn't really uh, work in the interests of the people anymore. It's just these people in the payroll of government and they take decisions that they want to take regardless of what the people want. And the second thing he said, he was then asked, so will you resign the whip now? Because he, he was saying that this the, the vote did, uh, was a disaster for me. And he said, well, no, I won't resign the whip because I'm a Tory through and through. And it, you, you just get the sense that there's no willingness, really, of, of the, the people that are elected MPs just now just to reconsider the wider sort of political position in terms of how they relate to the parties. And I think it's quite interesting if you look at what's going on in the UK just now versus perhaps what's been going on in France, because France, the interesting thing about the French general election a, a year or so ago was the decimation of the political parties and the way that there's, there's an entirely new set of uh, circumstances arisen in French politics just now where uh, Macron's come in, but he doesn't, uh, it doesn't feel like he represents anyone. And there's just no one else that appears to represent uh, the interests of the people, which leaves this vacuum, which potentially interesting new things spring up in, and who knows where the yellow vests uh, protests are going to go but there just does seem a space for something to occur uh, when i started off I, I mentioned that you know parliament stands exposed jeff and, it, and and in a different context somebody was saying to me well you know people constantly say how do you know what people think i mean one of the things that has been fascinating for me is actually following social media closely and I, and I know that the world is not Twitter before anyone gives me a lecture but actually a huge number of people seem to have joined social media in order to have a voice and as you uh, were mentioning Jeff you know the radio phone-ins have become an invaluable source all of the kind of talk shows have really taken off where people are kind of very vocal about kind of watching PMQs watching what's happening in parliament and not just sitting on the sofa and shouting at the radio but actually actively involved in discussions and I know that a lot of people I know who aren't part of the Westminster bubble are just talking constantly and following this stuff very carefully I mean in that sense Brexit really has been a refreshing healthy exposure of the limits of what our parliamentary system offers us and gives us a chance to reconfigure things? Or is that me being too optimistic about the future? A lot of commentators talk about Brexit a lot, but also underestimate its significance. And so it's like, well, this thing's going on at the moment for the next couple of months till it's sort till the solution is discovered. And then we'll get back to discussing the really big issues, other issues or whatever. Whereas to me, whatever happens in the future, whether there's another referendum or whether there's a, a, a crashing out of the EU or whatever, the vote itself, the significance of the vote itself has changed politics for, for years, if not decades. And that's echoing th through politics. And so I think in terms of maybe the parties realigning, that hasn't happened yet. And it may not happen in because of the way Britain is. But these things will, in, in some ways, it's beginning rather than the end of a process. And that Brexit itself is something of huge importance, almost historically, to my view, maybe I'm overstating it, over the years, the, these things will play out. So I see it more in, in that context. So I don't think, I think it's very difficult to overstate uh, what, what's happening, even though the machinations with Theresa May are toe-curlingly embarrassing and awful in many regards. The 
event as a whole is uh, has some very positive connotation. Okay, I think that's a good place to kind of move on and sort of onto the next stage, which I think, Jeff, you've summed it up really well. And, you know, what you can say is that nothing's changed, the parties are all exactly the same, and yet everything has changed absolutely historically forever in British politics. So moving forward, let's just consider the future. So what happens next? It's become a bit of a fool's errand to even begin to try and anticipate the future because things are, to say the least, fluid and unpredictable. But, you know, March 2019 is supposed to be the date in which we leave the EU. So looking forward, uh, what do we anticipate? There's a lot of talk about second referendums, extending Article 50, even simply scrapping Brexit altogether. And the future of Brexit is definitely less and less clear cut as we kind of move into the new year. So what can we do to keep fighting for democracy, those of us who care about it? And to discuss this, I'm joined by the Battle of Ideas Festival producer, Ella Whelan, and our associate director, Alistair Donald, is still with us. So, Alistair, I suppose the question to ask you is, is Brexit doomed? I don't think Brexit is doomed as such for for many of the reasons that Jeff explained uh, a few minutes ago, which is that there's something much deeper uh, going on just now in terms of a a complete reorganisation of politics and uh, a demand for doing politics differently. So I think uh, it's it's not doomed in that sense. Uh, What might be doomed is this particular version of Brexit is almost in in the way that people speak about things just now. You almost need to be thinking now, I think, about Brexit 2.0 because it does look, uh, from from reading the papers and reading what's going on over the last few days, that uh, the country has been forced uh, towards a second referendum. I mean, I I think it would not really be a surprise to too many people if that's where we end up, Um, especially if people in the Cabinet now are are going round and and actually arguing for it and meeting behind the Prime Minister's back with other people to, to make sure it happens. So it does seem to me that that's the direction that we're headed in, which I think on one level is a disaster because it's completely anti-democratic but uh, it's something that we have to deal with and and that will then become the route uh, to restate the case for democracy. I think this time importantly armed with the knowledge of what has happened last time and being able to prepare for it better. Okay so we, we will talk about the second referendum in a minute as possible anyway but Ella I mean why is Brexit still important? I mean, we, Jeff could have sort of articulated some of it earlier, but I mean, I suppose we do have to ask whether people still want it. I mean, is it is important historically, but maybe people have said their bit now. And do they actually want Brexit? You have to remember that for years, decades even, the problem with British politics has been apathy. So there's been you know, huge discussions about how do we get people to vote in general elections? How do we get people off the sofa, young people, old people, to try and engage? And then they do engage uh, in historic numbers, biggest political mandate in British history, Brexit, let's not forget. Uh, and this happens to it. So you would expect, a reasonable person would expect people to say, I knew it. Politicians don't want to listen to me. This is pointless. I will never, ever be involved in politics again because what is the point? But actually, people aren't saying that. And polls uh, throughout this year have shown that though people have been annoyed with the way that Brexit has been handled, it doesn't mean that they don't want it anymore. So there were the uh, organisers behind the People's Vote and the kind of arch Romaniacs, as they've been called, brandished this poll earlier in the year, which said that a quite significant percentage of people uh, were unhappy with Brexit. But if you drill down into the actual question that they asked people, they said, are you happy with the Brexit deal, with the way Brexit has been handled? 
No. Well, you'd have to be a fool to be happy with the way it's been handled. Uh, But the fundamental thing is there is no evidence in surveys or in general sentiment in any case that people don't want this to happen anymore. So I think that's the one kind of kernel of hope that you have that actually no matter what happens in cabinet no matter what happens with the kind of braying that's going on in pmqs week after week people at home still haven't changed their mind it's interesting because i think that does inform some of the discussions around the second referendum both if it happens what the opportunities are which you were starting to talk about um, and I, I want to say opportunities. I also think we need to look at the real serious dangers of it. But, but just to say, it's kind of an interesting situation we're in because I think we all do feel completely and totally frustrated with the fact that the interpretation of Brexit by the uh, political classes has been so narrow and skewed, either um, only uh, seeing everything through the kind of Ollie Robbins, Theresa May technocratic view of how best to protect British business and kind of deal with it without too much disruption and that's led to the deal or to kind of think oh yeah well all those kind of plebs either in Brexit are all kind of xenophobes so we'll kind of create a hostile environment and kind of push the race card so that they can see that we're kind of doing what they want or you know even that they're kind of a bit poor so we might give them a bit more money or something you know it's completely condescending misreading of what the whole vote was about So when you're kind of watching all this playing out and you go, no, no, that's not what anyone was saying. No, no, no. So, of course, in some ways, I don't want Parliament to resolve it. You know, in some ways, I can understand the kind of give it back to us, give it back to us. So in in a funny sort of a way, the second referendum in a kind of positive way feels like give it back to us so we can tell you again and restate again what it was we were saying. However, nobody might vote. A lot of people might just say, don't tell me this is the most important vote in my life again, because you said that once before. And it might lead to a complete cynicism. Uh, Somebody actually called it the other day, who's not a fan, said it would lead to a bloodletting, possibly, you know, that being not just a metaphor in the sense of just feeling like, imagine the stalls on the streets, because you know how vicious it is at the moment. All of this sort of thing feels rather nerve-wracking. But anyway, Alistair... Definitely need to take account of what could be uh, some grave dangers of a sef- second referendum, I think, which is, as, as, as you say, Claire, is that people uh, express the, the sentiment that, well, uh, it, it, I was told to vote, you took no notice of me, so why should I vote again? And it's that, uh, that potential of a retreat into not just apathy, I think, but a general sort of... Uh, pissed offness if you like with the whole of the political process that's that's a genuine danger and i think that's why uh, those that are taking us towards a second referendum are genuinely playing with fire in 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 terms of trying to go there the opportunities though i th- i think are we we need to recognize i think the the opportunity i mean it seems to me that the the what brexit has been up to now is is that it's been reduced to almost a process or a procedure um, a technical process and you know what brexit was meant to be in, in my understanding of it and i think for many others that, that that voted for it was a new form of politics it was meant to be politics and all you know we've ended up with the procedure and the process to the detriment of politics and i think we need to now think about how it is that we force politics back to the forefront of thinking about uh the, the next referendum if indeed it's on its way i mean that's one of the things that appeals to me about the kind of no deal brexit not because i'm uh, you know keen on jumping off cliffs and 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 i know that there are technical 
challenges that will come from that, especially because they've squandered two and a half years of not preparing. But in some ways, the fact that you would be forced to reimagine the relationships, you know what I mean? It would take it away so much from the process. Obviously, people will have to do all the trade deals and all that. I, I'm not trying to underestimate the difficulties. And yet somehow that clean break would allow that kind of more positive progressive side of, uh, of of what brexit means uh, to be forced to happen but it does seem unlikely doesn't it that anyone would have the courage or the nerve when you look at um to do that unless you actually had some kind of a vote even though i am absolutely adamant that this vote is anti-democratic but ella what's your kind of thinking you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place i think because the no deal brexit let's not forget is Brexit is what it's not saying that we uh, you know two years ago said let's vote to give ourselves a really hard time no but we voted to leave the single market leave the customs union uh, leave the remit of the EU's laws all those things was what was you know I'll have have no truck with people saying we didn't know what we voted for that was what was voted for and that is what a no deal Brexit would entail but the issue as you highlighted Claire is that you have to have a government with a bit of guts in order to do that you have to have a government that's going to be able to say okay so we're going to leave it's going to cause disruption but We'll put the money in where it's needed to make sure that people don't lose their jobs, for one. We'll uh, start up new uh, areas of production and kind of kickstart the economy. All these big ideas that is not, it's completely absent in British politics. You do not have government that's willing to uh, do what's necessary in order to make this work. And so you're stuck with basically banging your head against a brick wall, it feels like. But I think in relation to the second referendum... For two years, it's felt like we've just been playing the game of parliamentarians. So, and, and also that Ramoners, Romaniacs, the kind of people who aren't reasonable people who voted Remain, but the political elite who are trying to overturn Brexit, have been calling the shots for two years. So they said, no, Theresa May can't have uh, no deal. No, she can't have a bad deal. Now they're saying, no, we have to have a second referendum. Uh, you know, it's getting to the point where... Th- they say jump and Brexiteers are expected to say how high. And I think at some point you have to kind of say, I'm ready for the total destruction of Parliament. I'm ready for some drastic stuff. I'm even ready for a kind of gilet jaune Britain style because otherwise you are just left to going back to playing their game. I mean, the thing I think that would be very difficult with a a second referendum beyond the fact that its premise is to uh, completely deny what democracy would mean is that there would also be real confusion in terms of Brexit is about how to play it. I mean, so you've got somebody like Paul Embry, the um, Fire Brigade Union guy has been utterly brilliant on the whole Brexit question, saying, should we boycott? Um, You've had quite a lot of people over the weekend, I've noticed, that have been saying things who say, I voted Remain, but if they had a second referendum, I'd vote Brexit just because I think it's so terrible. So you that's kind of both two completely opposite sides. Um, because one of the things we should remember is is that Romaniacs and Ramonas, such as they are, are a a a, a, a smallish. I mean, I mean, it might be millions of them, but nonetheless, the majority of Remain voters are not in that camp. And so I think that there, there, there could be some fluidity there, and obviously there will be some people who voted Brexit and have now seen the dis- sort of disruption it's caused, and would kind of get safe life, go back to keeping things the way they were, but. I think it would cause us real problems because it's not like as though you'd kind of know how to react to it. One of the things that I I think is is that we do need to consider now how in all of these challenges we make democracy first, foremost and central to everything. I mean, certainly from the Academy of Ideas point of view, just putting democracy centre stage, looking at all angles on it, making sure that's... But I mean, any way 
or ideas on how we might push democracy in the absence of a political party that represents us in any way at all? Well, I think uh, one of the the interesting thing uh, over the last couple of years is the way that um, the Brexit vote has always tried, that people have tried to delegitimise it by saying, oh, you're just nostalgic, you're looking back, you want Empire 2.0, whereas Remain have, have, have tried to portray themselves in a more positive light, and, you know, even to the extent that they've got half a million people out in the streets or whatever. But I think that's the wrong way of looking at it, because I think... At, at its at its base, the Remain vote was a a, a coward or, or not a cowardly, but but a, a vote uh, to retain things as they were, to retain a situation where people were demonstrably not happy with how things were. Brexit, on the other hand, for all the difficulties in kind of working out exactly what it means, uh, uh, the, the most important thing about it was that it was a vote for change. It was a vote for doing things differently. And I think that, uh, uh, that need to work out what it is that we do differently has become tremendously important now. And, and if we do go to a second referendum, then you know, we have the knowledge of having gone through the first one, uh, exact of what the problems were and how to address those. And it seems to me that Putting at the centre of it uh, that demand to be uh, free of other people controlling ourselves, or, or to put it better, uh, to, to have control ourselves of where it is that we want to go, that's a tremendously important thing. And I, I, I think we can work with that to, to uh, develop a, a new outlook that can actually make it make it work well one thing's for sure whatever happens to brexit i think like we've said earlier in the podcast politics has changed forever and you've only got to switch on a thursday night and watch question time to show that <laughs> the audience members have been fantastic and people want to talk about this and it's not going away and i think now is a time for principles and for making very clear lines in the sand that british democracy is on the line if a second referendum happens to my mind it means that every vote in the future is worthless that's a really strong thing to have in our back pocket to say if you do this if you undermine this then you are completely delegitimizing politics forevermore let's hope it doesn't get to that point but i think if it does uh, it will be fodder for some serious further change in British politics and I'm looking forward to potentially a radical future. I think that's a, a very nice thought and just to kind of finish as well, the, the, one of the things that I've uh, noticed is that there's a lot of people who sort of say we wish we could do this so that we could get on with the important job of you know, tackling important issues like food banks or poverty or you know, education or schools as though somehow Brexit's an annoyance to get out of the way rather than um, an opportunity that can democratically mean that we look at whole issues like education, how we organise health, the economy and so on in a new and radical way. It's not going anywhere. So I think that the whole question of democracy must be at the forefront. We should remember that one of the options that might happen is a fudged you know, Brexit sellout like Norway Plus or, you know, some version of May's deal because they might be too scared of a second referendum or too scared of of just no deal. But because they're not in control, anything could happen. But whatever happens, even if it's a fudge, if they think that people are going to just go, oh, all right, then that's that. Now back to the day job. It's not happening. And I think it's up to us to make the best of uh, 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 this democratic moment and, and to kind of be imaginative in how we view it. So from the Academy of Ideas point of view, what's happening in 2019 is that we'll be on the case. Uh, we'll be following developments closely. Excitingly, I'm doing a debate against 
um, Lord Andrew Adonis, which would be the highlight of the year uh, um, at school. But I'm quite looking forward to taking on that anti-democrat. Um, but more broadly, the Academy of Ideas itself will be organising anything from a, 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 a post-Brexit summit to kind of assess what's going on. We're planning the Battle of Ideas throughout the years, the festival uh, that will happen on November the 2nd and the 3rd. Um, and that will be very key to uh, thinking through the consequences of um, um, this very uh, important democratic moment, uh, sell out or not. Uh, what they won't do is shut us up. So we are almost about to have our Christmas holidays as well. So all of the team here at the Academy of Ideas, all of our podcasters, our staff, the volunteers who work for us, we'd like to say, have a brilliant Christmas. Have a little bit of rest because it's a big, heavy year ahead. But enjoy the mince pies and drink lots. (laughs) 